All right. So uh, I'll admit as a psychologist, um, intimate relationships and, and attraction and stuff is one of my favorite topics, uh, mainly because uh, there's been so shifts that we've seen in because of the advances of neuroscience and social neuroscience and and it's really forced us to take a different look at what intimate love is and what is attraction um, uh, because what we have found and we're going to actually watch a video on this is that um, uh, if you think that uh, love and intimacy is just an emotion it's just something you have and that's something you can control, um, uh, you're going to be surprised over the next two weeks. Because what uh, what's coming out of the neuroscience field and social neuroscience is that the areas of the brain that control intimate love, the reason why we care for each other, why we want to have someone in our life, the area of the brain that is associated with that is not the emotional areas. It's not the amygdala, which is which is one of the major centers of emotions. It's not the the the, the hippocampus area, that, which is associated with emotions and memory. Um, no, rather, what is associated with intimate love, finding a life partner. It's actually associated with areas within the brainstem, and the what's called the um, it's kind of the limbic system that is between the cortex and your limbic system. I apologize. I forget the name of it right at the moment. But these areas of the brain, the other thing that they are associated with is uh, keeping our heart going, keeping our lungs going. Uh, it's the area of the brain that tells us when we're hungry. It's the area of the brain that tells us when we're thirsty. It's all that automatic areas of the brain, those things we don't need to think about that about. And I want you to think about that. If that is the area that intimate love is firing and going crazy, when we're thinking about our love objects, when we're thinking about those people we want to be with, this makes love not an emotion, not a desire. It makes love a human basic drive, the same exact drive that drives us to eat, drink, breathe, and our heart keeps pumping. And I think that's kind of cool because it tells us a lot about the human condition, why, why it is we go so crazy when we lose love. Well, if you think about it, when we lose love, we go through the same things that we go through when we don't have access to food or water. We go and try and sometimes violently try to get it back. We become jealous of people who have it and we don't. Okay. It also explains why when we're in the thralls of it, we want more of it and we desire it. Okay. And so the thing that I want you to think about over the next two weeks is this adjustment in thinking about what having that special life partner in your life really is because it is just like food and water and breathing and heart beatings okay but i want to play a video that i think better describes it than i do and it's by uh, helen fisher who who is one of the intimate uh, uh, scientists who look into intimacy and into love and she does a really good introductory kind of video for us as we, as afterwards, we'll start talking about the attraction process. And then we'll start talking about why people fall in love in the first place. What is it that we, that, that we desire, those types of things. And we'll end with next week talking about family, but we'll also talk about there are people who can uh, have love for 30, 40, 50 years. And we'll talk about what is that and what makes them a little bit more unique than the rest of us who can't have that, okay? But I want to start with this video. I'm going to pause the recording because it is copywritten. So I'm going to pause our recording to play the video. Um, what what uh, Dr. Fisher was talking about with the chemistry.com um, uh, experiment is, is yes, indeed, sometimes we 
there is an attraction towards different types of personality types, but uh, ultimately there's no uh, consistent pattern that has been found yet. So uh, just to kind of emphasize those two points. So with, with that being said, let's get into the content of what we have tonight. Okay. All right, so as I said, we're going to talk about attraction and mate selection, but let's let's again give a common definition so we're all on the same page about what we mean by attraction, okay? Uh, Susan Fisk, um, who is uh, one of the most more intimate, <laughs> more famous social psychologists once said, attraction impels one person to seek another an attraction can change lives. And I think that that's a, a, an important point that whenever we're in, compelled towards someone, it's going to change us in some way. But when we define attraction, uh, let, let's just all agree that when we're talking about attraction, it's a concern, concerns a desire for voluntary relationship, sustained because participants enjoy each other. So, uh, during these conversations, we may hit it a little bit next week when we talk about marriage and family, about things like arranged marriages, um, things like forced relationships and those types of issues. And we'll talk about the difference between what, what that is versus what this is when we're talking about a voluntary um, uh, want for someone else, a voluntary desire for someone else, okay? And uh, operationally, we need to think of this in three specific areas, the affective, cognitive, and behavioral areas. Uh, primary affect is just a simple evaluation of liking or not liking another person. It's just saying, eh, no, yeah, yes. And I think, I, I hope anyways, because I hope I'm not the only weirdo in the room. I think there's people in the world that we're attracted to in instantly and there's people who kind of repel us instantly so I know there's people and it has to do with the affect how it makes you feel around them so I know that there's individuals um in my my life that I I just cringe when I hear I have to meet with them and there's no specific reason why they're perfectly decent people they have lots of friends they're good colleagues but for some reason it's just kind of not not my thing. This is what we're talking about primary affect is that that it's a an, an emotional component in that there's no rationale why we're uh, compelled to other people, but we're feeling um, wanting distance from others, okay? Cognition is one's belief about other uh, other persons. Um, this is uh, starting with early childhood and how we develop our understanding of love by watching, for example, our parents, watching our grandparents and, and seeing how they interact with each other and seeing what you know all of them like and dislike. And then we take those on in our life and we start to develop this idea of what we think the perfect partner would be for us uh, versus others. And I think this is this is an important point. This is this is where we develop likes and dislikes. So, um, you know, this is where you you get a preference for uh, people with tattoos or no tattoos, uh, people who um, have education and people who don't, uh, people who um, um, are quiet versus people who are loud. It all comes from that creation of a schema that we start early in infancy and develop uh, through early childhood and into adolescence, okay? And the behaviors are one's tendency to approach or, or it should say, or avoid other persons. So what, how we choose to react to that cognition and that primary affect, okay? So keep these, these kind of definition uh, uh, situations in mind as we move forward, okay? We also have to uh, look at uh, some uh, different themes we have to consider. One is biology, genetics, and evolutionary implications. And I think um, 
uh, Dr. Fisher well explain the biological aspects of it. Um, and when we get into uh, relationship formation, we'll talk about different areas of the brain that are doing different things. For example, we'll talk about how in the first two to three years, our brain actually um, uh, uh, produces something close to amphetamine or methamphetamine, which keeps us in that kind of excited mode and and uh, it get, gets us moving and motivated, but it also creates that paranoia and all those types of things. And then somewhere around the three to four year mark, our brain stops producing amphetamine and starts to produce a natural opamine, opiate, excuse me, which calms us down and makes us feel more content in our relationships. So we see these natural biological transitions even within relationships from uh, intense um, excitement to contentment and, and partnership. And then of course, we've talked about, along with Dr. Fisher, kind of the areas of the brain. This is when we're talking about the biology of, of love and attraction, we always have to remember that it's really close to the bottom of the brain stem. She mentioned the reptilian brain, uh, that these motivations that we have are not always under our control. Um, and so that's important to keep in mind. Uh, social shared norms, culture definitely plays a role. That's why we talk about this in sociology is that we do need to look at things like social norms, what our culture expects of us, what our community expects of us. Um, <clears throat> if we have time next week, I'll get into um, uh, interracial relationships, uh, cross-cultural relationships, uh, because while they can be rewarding and they can be uh, life-fulfilling, they also have their own unique challenges because they're going outside of that shared social norm. Uh, I think we've seen over the last uh, definitely 20, 25 years, some norms around same-sex relationships changing, right? But imagine how that transition has been uh, for a lot of individuals. And then the last uh, issue that we need to consider when we're talking about um, um, <clears throat> attraction is what is called idiosyncratic preferences, okay? Because everything I'm gonna present in this presentation, well, uh, it's, it, it obeys what's called the law of average, okay? We're gonna talk about what the average person is. But there is such variability in the human condition that uh, a lot of these kind of kind of rules or laws that we talk about don't apply to everyone. Okay, and I'll, I'll get to uh, some examples of that as we move along. Okay, so what I want to talk about first are three basic principles of attraction. The first principle being what's called familiarity, okay? Well, and, and this, is, this is a good example of idiosyncratic, this first statement uh, here, is while there are some people who are attracted to strangers, the majority of people are attracted to those who they are familiar with, they know and, and, and have information about. Uh, the majority of relationships start uh, uh, with friendships, they start in uh, churches, they start in the workplace, they start in the community, where people are exposed to each other over time. Now, there is, a, a again, an idiosyncratic group, a, a group of individuals who, who aren't attracted to people who are familiar to them. They're actually attracted to complete strangers. But the idea that uh, birds of the same feather flock together versus opposite attracts, for the vast majority of individuals, it's more of the birds who flock together uh, stay together versus the, the assumption of opposites attract. And this, this is kind of the model that, that we have. We're introduced to a novel person. Hopefully, we the very first thing we do when we meet anyone new is uh, we, we, we want to secure ourselves. We want to have safety. So we, we kind of check them out, right? And then there's something called the mere exposure effect. 
the mere exposure effect is just by the mere presence of another person consistently over time, we increase our liking, okay? So for example, if I were to kind of do an experiment in the class and, and I seated a confederate who was completely annoying and obnoxious uh, and always was interrupting the class. Um, and I measured liking at the beginning and at the end of the semester, I can almost guarantee that on average, even though the person stayed completely the same and obnoxious throughout the entire class, the liking of the individual will increase over the course of the semester, not decrease. And this is what's called the mere exposure effect, is that just by the mere continued presence of someone, we actually have more liking for them uh, over time. Now, for some people, it might just be a slight half of a fraction of an increase. For others, we see big increases. And as Mark Twain put, familiarity brings breeds contempt and it breeds children. So, so that's the principle of familiarity. And then there's the principle of similarity. Okay, and this is the notion that we, um, we, we're attracted to people with similar qualities and in, which increases the level and intensity of the relationship. So the principle of similarity, I mean, the principle, when we go back here to familiarity, gets us to be engaged with the in, individual. The, the principle of similarity is that that similarity between each other intensifies that attraction you have with another person. It increases it. So when you find more and more things in common with someone, uh, looks, uh, belief systems, the more intense the feeling of attraction becomes. And then there's the principle uh, of respirosity, which is, uh, uh, we all want uh, <laughs> we all want to know we are like, liked and thought well of. Therefore, positive attention leads to greater attention, and we're more likely to reciprocate that back. Okay. However, there are some caveats to this principle. Is one is remember the law of operant conditioning. The law of operant conditioning is is when a behavior is rewarded, it increases the probability that it'll occur in the future. So, um, uh, so when you're doing something someone likes, they're gonna reward you, which is going to shape your behavior. And, but there's two other uh, aspects to re respirosity that are really important is one, it has to be authentically congruent. And meaning that um, uh, if you've ever had someone uh, and you know, you know, you, you don't always have really good mornings, you know, you don't always look great. Yeah, but every morning they wake up and say, oh, you're so beautiful and wonderful. And you hear that every single morning, eventually you're going to start to question that. And you're going to go, okay, what is their motive behind doing that every single morning when it's not congruent with how I feel? Okay. And also too much can lead to motive seeking. So person who constantly and constantly is saying, I love you, I love you, you're beautiful. All those kind of things that makes the person lead, okay, what is this person up to? What, what are they doing? Okay. So there's some caveats to, to respirosity. Um, but when it's done correctly, when it's done congruently and authentically, and when it's not overdone, um, a lot of people who overdo it either do have a motive for doing it, they're doing something wrong, or they're insecure. And those are all things that are become very unattractive in, in the end. So, but this is really what is kind of, this is a principle that really kind of nails a person in um, um, with someone. So we have the first principle, which gets us to know each other. The second principle will intensify the more similar we are. This one is the one that really will get us connected and understanding each other, okay? I do wanna talk a little bit about the role of physical appearance because uh, we do know, you know, um, 
Uh, there's not many people who wouldn't say that they're not attracted to certain uh, superstars. Um, uh, you know, we, we always find attraction to uh, beautiful people, those types of things. And um, the thing that we have to recognize is a difference between who we end up falling in love with and this. Uh, this this kind of is more in the realm of a, of a stereotype fulfillment, goal fulfillment. In fact, um, you know, in the machines, when we're looking at intimate love um, and we show pictures of really hot guys or really hot women, stereotypically, uh, it's not that area of the brain that starts to fire that is associated with attraction and intimate love. It's actually more the emotional areas that are that and and cognitive areas that are um, 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 uh, firing. Okay. Um, I, I'm actually going to uh, put this one. Uh, uh, to rest, uh, we actually, there's research on the, the idea or the notion that uh, physically attractive people have more success and more wealth and have more uh, uh, abilities to, to um, um, uh, have intimate encounters uh, and uh, a lot of recent research. In fact, I just need to take this slide out of the presentation, actually finds there isn't a physical appearance advantage when it comes to attraction and when it comes to um, uh, intimacy. Uh, we find that uh, attractive people fell out just as much as what you would consider stereotypically unattractive people do. So this one is one that uh, needs to be erased from our textbooks. I apologize for even having that one in there. Okay, that one as well. Okay, so there are some universal universal universals of attraction and what i mean by universals of attractions are these are things that we find across cultures and again i'm going to i'm going to make this point on average so this isn't everybody but this is something we consistently find on average across cultures that this is measured in um, and when I talk about cross-culture, this has even been taken into even some of the Aboriginal cultures in, in, in um, um, New Guinea uh, to, to places in Europe like Germany, of course, here in the United States and South America. And these are kind of the things that we tend to find um, uh, consistent across cultures. Uh, signs of youthfulness and signs of health. Um, so clear skin, absence of sores. Uh, we tend to find that uh, large wide set eyes as, as uh, maybe this one's the best example, uh, smaller noses, uh, prominent cheekbones tend to be a universal attractiveness as far as physical attraction, okay? Now, again, again, this is on average across cultures. It's, it, there, there's cultural idiosyncratics within each culture. There's some cultures who like um, uh, more, more uh, narrowed faces and stuff, but on average, this is what on average we find. Probably one thing that is not on average across cultures, but is pretty consistent across all cultures is what's called the universal of attractiveness, which is facial symmetry, okay? So if you look at this picture, this is the picture of the actual guy, this one on the, on the left, okay? And then on the right, um, uh, we, we computerly kind of made his face asymmetrical. So you can see his eyebrows are, are higher than this one. And of course, we ask people uh, to rate this person's attractiveness. And of course, uh, it probably doesn't take much to guess, but a uh, picture on the left is rated uh, higher attractiveness than the person on the right. Even though it's the same exact individual, uh, if you if you base things on personalities about physical features, it's the same personality, it's the same person, but just because of the asymmetry of the face, um, uh, people will rate one face more attractive than the other. Okay. Now, why is this? There, there, there's really been three arguments, but I think the third one 
probably is the one that gets most close to it. One is the aesthetic argument. We find that when people rate beautiful pictures, beautiful scenery, flowers, and all those, the more symmetrical the picture is, the more symmetrical the flower is, the higher it's rated in beauty and attractiveness. Uh, there's also the familiarity argument uh, where, where the more asymmetrical the face is, the less it looks like something familiar, something human, okay? But probably the, 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 the argument I think that makes most sense and has the most evidence for is we have found that the more the asymmetrical the face is, uh, the more developmental issues the person has, the lower their fertility, and they have a slower growth rate and a poor survival rate, okay? So uh, this is prob this, this, this probably makes a little bit more sense from at least a biological, evolutionary, physiological end. Um, but this, this is probably one of the laws where averages um, is more than just averages. It's, it, it's kind of denoted across individuals. Um, okay. Uh, this one is definitely a law of averages. What do men look for? Um, when when uh, 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 attracted to females, again, this is averages across cultural cultures. Uh, look for youthfulness. Look for good health, and uh, something we call look for fertility. Okay, and this actually comes to a a, a an equation that that can be drawn is what's called the waist to hip ratio. So measurement of the waist, measurement of the hip, and divide the hip into the waist, the closer that ratio becomes to 0.7, the more attractive men find that woman physically, okay? Now, what this ratio is also associated with, however, is healthy birthing. The closer a woman's hip to a waist uh, ratio is to 0.7, the more likely it will be that they'll have an easy, non-complicated birth. So that's probably the reason behind this one as well, as far as physical attraction is concerned. And that's really what we're talking about right now is just physical attraction. But again, uh, I will note to this, there has actually been a few recent articles that have been published that challenge this universality. Um, we're finding more and more uh, for example, research has been done in, in again, some, um, 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 trying to look for the word, some, some of our African nations, uh, some more indigenous nations, um, uh, definitely in the South Pacific area, uh, we're finding this ratio does not, um, is not necessarily applicable there. So I just want to put that caveat in there that we are starting to find non-cross-cultural similarities between groups. So this one more obtains probably to more second world, first world types of uh, uh, cultures and societies and those who more stereotype body frames instead of um, looking at it from their own cultural, social view. So I just wanted to add that because there has been some recent um, articles uh, published on, on this ratio that has been around for quite a while. Um, so now what about uh, universal attractiveness uh, for women to men? Okay. Uh, while we have a list, uh, we find that face we see, and, and, and I find these kind of interesting cues of dominance in the face, deep voices rather than high-pitched voices, and stereotype faces. Now, what do I mean by cues of dominance, and what does the research look like in this kind of thing? This is where um, we ask women what they want. Do they want a dominant, strong man or, or uh, someone who's very um, masculine, as you would say? Or do, are they looking for that uh, sensitive guy and, and the, the, the kind person, okay? And we find that then when we have them go rate pictures of attractiveness of men, both, it doesn't matter where the female is on the gamut of wanting a nice, kind guy versus a dominant, aggressive guy, 
the majority of women will rate that face with dominance, more on that aggressive side, more of that uh, bravado side as more attractive than the guys who have personalities that are kind of more that kind uh, type. So that that's where that research comes from. I, I think the deep voice uh, research is is interesting as well. Um, uh, the, the, there, there was actually a show done in Europe about this kind of as a as a comedy type uh, situation. And basically what they did in this situation, and I'll kind of give the TV version because the research version is a little bit uh, boring, is that um, uh, we we take we took women and we have men with high pitched voices, men with low pitched voices. Um, and we have them memorize a romantic poem or, or just a poem of some type. And we can bring the females in. And this is, the, of course, the TV show version of this. And there's a curtain and the, boy, the, the man uh, recites the poem. And so the deep voice guy does this really deep voice and deep. Okay. And then the high pitch guy kind of gives a poem kind of with that high pitch uh, thing. And then they ask the, the, the female, what do you think the man behind the curtain looks like? And of course, with the high pitch guy, they think, oh, he must be physically strong, physically fit. No, no, the high pitch guy must be a kind of a weakling, probably a little overweight, kind of scrawny. Um, you know, and then the deep voice guy is big and muscular and strong and very physically fit. Um, and then they undo the curtain. And, and, and I always find it kind of funny because the pitch of a voice in men is really determined by the testosterone men produce. And larger guys, uh, guys who are, are plump, tend to produce more testosterone than men who are thin and skinny. No, no offense to anyone thin or skinny, um, but guys with high pitch voice tend to produce more estrogen, okay? And estrogen increases the pitch of the voice. And so that tends to be men who are really scrawny and those types of things. Now, there's always differences. Remember, there can be very skinny guys who have very deep voices, and this is on average, okay? And, and it always surprises people when they, uh, there's this guy with this nice uh, low voice and whatnot, and um, uh, they're, they're that, and the other is the skinny, scrawny guy. That's the TV version of it. Um, but uh, for any of the single guys in the room, I think this is a good point to make some advice. If, if you're worried about your looks and everything else, always start a relationship with a phone call and do it in a nice, deep voice. That'll get you started. Um, and then the rest is up to you, but kind of give that a try at first and uh, I would go from there, okay? Uh, and then just like uh, with females, when we talked about signs of youthfulness and those types of things, we do see some uh, uh, different facial features with men. So this angular face, uh, again, the jotted jaw that we saw with uh, females and this craggy eye. Uh, look uh, that we have on on on, on James Bond here. Uh, these all are are signs of physical attractiveness. And if you look at uh, that magazines that put out the you know world's most attractive man or America's most attractive man, uh, you'll see that um, uh, most of them meet uh, this facial criteria of, of attractiveness. Okay. Um. And let's go back. The other thing for women are fads are important, uh, but there needs to be, again, a, a, a comment on this. When we talk about women and fads, we're not talking about Paris or New York. We're talking about local fads, whether the individual is um, dressed according to the current fad that they're in, okay? And so if you go to, uh, for example, where I come from in, in, in the rural Northwest, uh, when there's not many people who dress in suits and three-piece suits and ties, it's usually, you know, at the most a polo shirt and some slacks. Um, if a guy goes there with a three-piece suit, uh, he's not going to have very much luck uh, attracting a mate. 
um, uh, and 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 just just in the similar vein, uh, you know, a person who is dressed in uh, you know ready to uh, work the farm goes to an urban New York Paris place, probably doesn't have much luck either. So when we talk about fat, we're talking about local fats. What's kind of expected for that community? And then when we dress outside of that, um, uh, we tend to get uh, either negative attention or no attention at all. Um, we've mentioned visual cues, but there's also probably a really important cue for women, and that's the smell of men. Um, and, and, and there is some idiosyncratic differences based on different volumes of the different chemicals in shirts. So this isn't a, a one fits all, but I'm gonna give the easy example of what I mean by smell of men's t-shirts is in the first research that they did on this, uh, they took, a, it was at a college of course. And so uh, they had, a, let's say the men's football team wear a t-shirt during practice and they got all sweaty in it and all that kind of stuff. And then they had fresh, clean, non-smelling shirts, okay? And then they would put women in these booths um, and they'd either be in there, they didn't know, they'd either be in there with the uh, soiled shirt or the freshly laundered shirt. And what we found, again, on average, is that women would rate the same pictures of men more attractive in the smelly shirt room than in the freshly laundered shirt room, okay? And again, uh, the, the explanation from this goes back to biology. Uh, we find that uh, the testosterone is contained in male sweat. And over time, we have found that the more testosterone a male releases, the more their smell, um, they're found to be attractive regardless of their stereotypical face of um, look. Uh, and I think this kind of explains why sometimes you see, you know, why is she with him or he's with her? Well, it's not always about the visual aspects of a person. There's also other sensory aspects of a person along with uh, our voices and everything else that kind of determine who we're attracted to, okay? All right. Trying to get through this. All right, so just to kind of summarize some of the stuff that we've been talking about in mate selection, uh, we know mere exposure effect occurs. We tend to marry someone uh, from our neighborhood, school, or back workplace. I know this has probably changed uh, due to globalization and our ability to date someone across the world or across the state lines. Um, but what we find is, is that even with those relationships that start online, even with those relationships that um, begin at a distance, uh, mere exposure still plays a role. Um, uh, there's a lot of examples, uh, kind of um, uh, more subjective examples of people who were very attracted to each other when they were texting each other, uh, doing the online thing with each other. But then when they physically met together, the spark disappeared. And, and we're seeing that as a more commonplace. Um, but we're finding still the people who we find in our own neighborhood, school, and workplace tend to, that spark tends to continue. Uh, we tend to marry people who are similar in height, religion, intelligence, personality, and physical attractiveness. Um, this sometimes is hard to see because, uh, uh, you know, there's people who, uh, you know, uh, marry the a-hole in the, in the group. Um, but uh, we have to look beyond emotions when we we're working with that. <laughs> uh, that that uh, uh, there's more of a distribution on that one. The other thing that we 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 recognize is that that in a lot of mate selection, <laughs> there is also something called fair and equitable distribution of resources. Okay. And this is basically, I get what I want out of this and you get what you want out of this and we find it equal in a sense. And we'll come back to this when we talk about those people who even after 30, 40 years are still madly in love next week. All right. 
Again, we're talking about universals. Uh, so uh, what, what do uh, men and women rate as most important across cultures as far as uh, mates are concerned? Well, this is kind of the list, uh, rank ordered list. We look for kindness, which makes sense. Loyalty, we don't want someone to cheat on us. Uh, emotional stability, uh, sometimes that's tricky in the beginning when we're trying to act like we have it all together. Uh, men, of course, youthfulness and physical appearance, women, status, resource acquisition, such as education, earning potential, and ambition. And again, uh, I think on a lot of these, these ends, um, because I've always been asked by students, you know, listen, I, I ended up with the biggest loser in the world. And uh, a lot of times when we get talking about it, uh, we talk about at the beginning of the relationship and, and what kind of things were said. And, uh, you know, very few guys will come up and say, you know what, I'm going to sit on your couch and play video games all day. Maybe a few today, maybe in our modern times that's changed. Or um, I'm, I, I, I don't consistently keep a job um, or something like that. It rarely, uh, I think, uh, guys would fess up to that. Most uh, men will go into a dating situation and say, yeah, I'm going to own my own business someday. I'm working towards buying my own, blah, 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 blah. And so up front, uh, the status looks pretty good. Um, but it's not until that later on period where we find uh, differences. Okay. Um, there is interesting research uh, because I mentioned in this class, especially at the beginning of the semester, about how women are gaining a lot of um, uh, power in society. We can see this in our last election, the number of women that were uh, elected to uh, um, uh, governorships and uh, Senate and, 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 and Congress. Um, and we're seeing uh, the effects of, of women in power. And it's kind of interesting because many of the feminists believed, um, and I'm sure maybe even some males, believed, and we'll use this red line to represent women, that as women's power, this represents power on this axis. So we have low power to high power. And that as, as power increases, the assumption made by a lot of early theorists is that a woman's need for a man with power will decrease. That, you know, it's a resource thing, right? So, so maybe, um, maybe I don't need that guy who has high power status if I'm the one with that kind of status. But right now it's kind of interesting because what we found is is that uh, with, with power comes the need for a male with even that more power, even exponentially. So a woman in, in the highest power often needs that man who actually either is perceived or to have more power than they do, which is kind of an interesting thing. Um, I think there's some trends in, in current research to to suggest that this is equaling out, um, that this effect isn't as large as, as it once was in the research. Um, and so, but we'll have to watch that one. But this is the current results, but we're seeing that change as well. So. We also know that there's gender differences in, in, in mate selection as far as, as willingness to get into long-term relationships. Um, and I think this, uh, from a view from, from, from studying both sexuality and, and mate selection, I think this, uh, this is a result of us getting our sex drive confused with our mating drive, with our mate drive, uh, with our intimate love drive, okay? Because when we look at, at, at sexuality, men have an advantage according to evolution to spread their seed as much as they can. And women have uh, a commitment because they're, they, they, they're having that child, that child is developing inside of them and there's gonna be this commitment to that infant. And so what, that, so what we found is, is that men are, tend to be more interested in several short-term intense relationships where women are looking for more fewer relationships over the lifespan. 
I should note this, that, um, you know, sexuality and human intimacy, um, while we confuse the two uh, socially and sometimes cognitively, from a brain perspective, they are two separate things. Indeed, the intimate uh, love drive goes along the right track of the brain and the sex drive goes along the left track of the brain. There are two separate areas of the brain that are being reacted when we're, we're seeking out sexuality versus seeking out intimacy and, or an intimate partner. And so, uh, but I think sometimes there's a cultural effect of combining the two. I'd also like to mention a, a kind of an interesting kind of looking at the different preferences between men and women, um, uh, the Hawaii experiment. Um, in this experiment, uh, Confederates, these are individuals who are working for the researcher, randomly go up to strangers and they ask one of two questions. The, they will either ask, would you have sex with me? Or would you go on a date with me? Okay, and then remember, these are random strangers. Um, and what we found is, is, is when we originally did this research that 70% of men said yes. 0% of women said yes. In fact, what we found is, is those men who said no actually apologized and kind of made an excuse saying that they were either married or they were already involved. They would if they could, but they couldn't is basically the, the result. Women often responded with outrage and disgust, regardless of, and, and just so you know, the, the Confederates that were selected had what we call an average attractiveness. Their ratings were average. So they, they weren't um, non-attractive individuals, but they weren't the, you know, the superstars, as you would say, or the tens, I think is the word I've heard. But what about, would you go on a date with me? This one is the one I think is interesting. Women were like, okay, on, so 50%, so 50% of women coin toss would say, yeah, sure, I would do that. The thing that interests me is, is for men, it goes from 70% down to 50% or 53%. Um, and so this kind of, uh, in a way, expounds on other research that we found that uh, uh, men tend to have uh, uh, differences in what they're seeking when they're looking at uh, even strangers in a strange situation like this one. So, um, um, so there's that. And so what, what do we find when we come to uh, uh, long-term relationships? So you've selected the major, and, and we do find that there's some gender differences in this. Um, uh, we find that uh, um, uh, women, men kind of do a calculation about whether they're going to stay in a long-term relationship versus doing the benefits of having multiple encounters. They do this calculation and they decide whether the quality of the relationship outweighs the benefits of having multiple encounters with other women. And if it goes below that quality, we find men will seek out other um, uh, advantages. Okay? Um, we find that wealthy men are more likely to engage in what's called serial relationships or basically cheating behavior. So this is the stereotype of the wealthy man who has a wife at home and the secretary at work. Uh, stereotype again, but we do find that there is an association between male wealth and their willingness to engage in cheating behavior. Uh, we find that men are more likely to engage, and this is again, I, I think, a, another issue for, for social and our social so sociology issue is men are more likely to engage in long-term relationships if they are perceived as if their partner is perceived as having premarital chastity on part of the female. So, so uh, having less sexual partners before the man tends to um, make the man want to engage more in a long-term relationship. Um, I think, again, this, this, this is probably a cultural issue. I haven't seen much research done on other cultures except for here in the United States. Um, but uh, I think this one we can we can cash up to culture and definitely our views of the 
the, the biases we have between men and women. I want to see. Okay, I'm going to skip that one. All right. I did, uh, I haven't included the. Uh, Daniela, the, the, the studies of previous generations. So what studies we do have is, is it kind of fits that same line, right? So this is kind of a cultural thing, right? Is, uh, you know, before, um, before in traditional relationships, the, the female was expected to remain chastised, right? And so I do think that we're seeing um, a, a cultural aspect to this. Um, what I would be interested in is seeing um, what it looks like today. Um, now that we have, as you mentioned, the, the apps and those to contact several different individuals and have different opportunities. Um, now, the interesting thing that I think is about cheating behavior that hasn't been put in these um, slides is uh, who will men and women engage in cheating behavior with? And it really has to do with the individual's primary partner. And what we find is, is that women will engage in cheating. I thought this was in here. Oh, it is right here. Ignore this. This is another thing that's been debunked. Okay. Um, we have it for women. When will people engage in, in, in um, what are called extra pair copulations? This means cheating, basically. Um, we've, we find that both males and females will engage in cheating behavior across culture. Men definitely do it a lot more than women. I think it's like a one to four ratio, something like that. Uh, but what when are women motivated to, we've, we've talked about when men are, so if they find dissatisfaction, the quality of their relationship less, um, we can go back to this slide. Um, we know that the more wealth a male has, uh, they'll more likely engage in cheating behavior if they find the quality is less than what the benefit would be. If, uh, you know, if they engage in uh, the, the their, their, their mates, uh, you know, premarital chastity, quote unquote. Um, so we know that men will engage in, in, in uh, extra pair copulation with this, as, you, as that word is said. Uh, women tend to be motivated uh, when dissatisfied with the current relationship and or gifts and status are received from an extra person, okay? Now, the interesting thing about cheating behavior that I think is that the tendency for who a male or a female chooses to engage in cheating behavior with is that we find that, again, this is on average, but it, it kind of fits the mold most of the time. Males will cheat with women who are two social statuses below their current partner. Okay, I want to repeat that. Men will cheat with will cheat on a woman when their primary female, the person they're gonna cheat with are two social statuses below their current partner. Women on the other hand, uh, for the majority, cheat with men who are two social statuses above their current male partner. So men go down, women go up. Kind of an interesting side note on, on cheating behavior. Now, again, I've gone through this and uh, uh, there's some things that we don't know. Uh, globalization, the internet, instant communication, increase of power in women, uh, resources uh, that partners bring to a relationship. Um, and so there are some questions that we have to ask today and whether these different things are impacting these, what we have seen traditionally over the last 50, 60, 70 years of doing research on this issue. So uh, I think we'll see some changes in this research in our more modern society, uh, especially with the more openness, the power of women coming out, uh, finding the status of the male within the family systems and all those things that we talked about dealing with gender issues and whatnot earlier in the semester. I think we'll, we'll, we'll find some uh, differences or some changes. And I've always been asked, what about same-sex relationships or, or same-sex attraction? 
Um, and, and I think I brought this up when we talked about gender, uh, is, is if you're interested in looking at same-sex and you know, bisexual, um, two-spirited um, relationships, um, I wouldn't look at any research before about 2012, uh, because uh, before 2012, the research tended to be funded by special interest groups who had one view or another, either a positive or a negative view. It wasn't until about 2011, 2012, that the federal government actually released funds for scientists who want to do unbiased research to do research on LGBTQ communities, okay? But what we have found so far um, with, with same-sex uh, attraction and those types of things is the patterns are the same. Uh, we find uh, even down to the shirt smell uh, experiments with females, uh, down to the signs of youthfulness with gay men, uh, we find these same, same trends. Uh, women uh, will cheat on a, a female companion with two statuses above. We find that men in same-sex relationships will cheat with two statuses below their male partner. And so, so far, so far, we haven't seen any differences between same-sex relationships and um, 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 uh, heterosexual relationships. So that's the status, uh, if anyone was curious, because I know I've been talking mostly male-female relationships, but uh, that, that is kind of where we are with same-sex relationships. So I'm going to stop sharing. Um, and and let's let's talk a little bit about uh, um, um, we're, we're going to start next week uh, with with a, a video uh, to kind of give some highlights uh, on some sociological experiments. Um, and I want to save them for next week because um, it's a good start to get into you know relationship development, formation, and family, and 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 the like about uh, what happens when two people are really falling for each other and really um, 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 engage with each other. And, and, and I'll just kind of give a highlight. Uh, so yeah, yes, there's sociologists and psychologists who show up to bars and to dating, popular dating places. And yes, we watch people, okay? It's a public place, it's public domain, so we're allowed to. Um, and we watch people and we watch what they do. And it's kind of interesting, if, if you're ever bored um, or, or, or want something to do, go, uh, or if you're on a date with your, your, your partner and it's, you know, you're kind of bored, uh, do this with your partner, is watch people who you think are on their first date. And, uh, and you'll actually be able to predict whether or not that relationship is gonna last very uh, long or not. Because what you'll notice is in the beginning of, a, of, of the date is that they're very idiosyncratic. They're doing their own things. They're, they're putting their napkins where they want it. They'll put their forks and knives where they want it. Um, uh, but as the night goes on, um, you'll notice something, especially with two people who really look like they're into each other, is that they'll start parroting each other you'll notice that their legs are pointed towards each other. You'll notice that their forks and knives are on the same places. You'll notice that their drinks are placed in the same place. That when one reach for the drink, the other one will reach for the drink. Um, you'll notice that when they uh, attend to something, they both will move in the same motion. In essence, they become synchronous with each other. And it's really kind of cool to watch if you, anyone's ever bored. Um, and when we think of the things like the basis of dance, when we think of the basis of the things of why people go to meet people where there's music and their rhythm, and there's places where people are doing the same thing, we're finding that maybe this is the basis for dancing. This is the basis for going to somewhere that has a lot of music is because it makes it so two individuals will become in sync with each other and they'll become one, as they said. But we'll watch a short video on that next week. I just think it's really cool to watch um, if anybody's bored. 
Um, but this is kind of where we'll leave it for this week. Does anybody have any questions? No. Thank you, Taylor. All right. Well, let's leave this uh, mate selection and attraction perspective right here. Next week, we will pick up uh, on, on development of uh, uh, the complete intimate relationship where two people become completely integrated with each other. And then we develop a family and we develop a community, um, which I think would be a, a good way to uh, start our uh, Thanksgiving week with. So we'll do that um, uh, next week. So uh, unless there's any questions, have a wonderful night. Again, the assignment for tonight is just to uh, post your notes from tonight. If you do handwritten ones, just take a picture of them, submit them, and you're good to go. Um, if you've typed them, just send them. You can copy and paste into the, uh, uh, the, the, the chat thingy on the thing, or you can upload a, a Word document or whatever, but uh, that's the assignment for this week. Um, and so until next week, everybody have a beautiful week, have a successful week, and we will see you next Tuesday. Thank you.